Uh, If you have a Bible, let's go ahead and flip to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, uh, continuing on with our summer series uh, about building your team. Uh, And so we are going to be looking at how Jesus built uh, his team, how Jesus built uh, the church. And in the Gospel of Matthew, you guys know, uh, as you're turning there, um, four Gospels uh, in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, Matthew is written specifically to a Jewish audience. Uh, And Matthew's agenda is to talk about, you know, what does it look like? What does the kingdom of God look like now in light of crucifying the king? Uh, And what does that look like? Uh, Whereas Mark, for example, Mark is written more with this mindset of discipleship. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? Luke is written more to Gentiles um, and is probably one of the the largest gospels you have because Luke just tried to get everything together. Uh, And then John is just kind of weird, right? He just kind of jumps in from the beginning. He's like, the word was with God before the beginning and bam, just goes right into it. Uh, But we are looking at Matthew this morning. And where we're at right now in Matthew chapter 8, so Matthew uh, kind of 1 through 4 is the entrance of the king. And Matthew 5 through 7 is kind of the agenda of the king, the message of the king, the famous Sermon on the Mount. And then right here in Matthew chapter 8, we're going to start looking at uh, what does it look like uh, as the king starts to build his kingdom. So we're going to read these verses, we're going to pray, and then we'll dive into it from there. So Matthew chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 1, says, says this, says, Large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly, a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. And Jesus reached out and touched him, uh, saying, I am willing, be healed. And instantly, the leprosy disappeared. Then Jesus said to him, don't tell anyone about this. Instead, uh, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. Okay, so the second person now Jesus comes across is this Roman officer. It says in verse 5, when Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, saying, Lord, my young servant lies in bed paralyzed and in terrible pain. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I know this because I myself am a man under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go or come and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, go back home because you believed it has happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. And then we find this third person that Jesus comes in contact with here in verse 14 when it says, when Jesus arrived at Peter's house, Peter's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. But when Jesus touched her hand, the fever left her. Then she got up and prepared a meal for him. That evening, many demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus 
He cast out the evil spirits with a simple command, and he healed all the sick. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, who said, He took our sicknesses, and he removed our diseases. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us uh, to be able to sit, gather together in fellowship, look at your word. I pray, God, that this morning as we see what uh, you have written by your Holy Spirit, working through human authors uh, in their own uh, particular personalities and writing styles, that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that he would uh, convict us, that he would change us more into the image of your Son through your word, that you would use it as a sharp sword to pierce through joint and marrow and change us and carve us and form us into the image of Christ. Uh, And if you're willing this morning, I ask you just pray uh, that yourself. Ask God to to teach you something this morning. And then if you could pray for me. Pray that what I say will be helpful, will be clear. I'm excited about this text, but but I want it to be helpful and ultimately make God look awesome. So if you could pray for uh, me. Father, we love you, and uh, we trust you. Uh, Please use this time, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, uh, when I was in high school, uh, I was a big Bear Grylls fan, okay? Uh, I loved watching Man vs. Wild uh, and learning how to survive out in the wilderness. And uh, my next-door neighbor, uh, Matt Farley, uh, him and I would watch this show together. And as I was getting near college, uh, he still had one more year of high school. I was done. I was going off to college. And so we decided together, like, it would just be uh, the best thing for us, just the two of us, go off into the wilderness of Oklahoma uh, and spend a weekend out underneath the stars in just kind of like a camping survival environment, Okay. So we got excited about this. We got my truck. We went to Kroger to get all of our supplies, right? We thought to ourselves, you know, we would love to go fishing there, but we kind of figured we might get there too late. So the next best thing is just like buy a fish, right? So we found this this fish in Kroger that was, you know, yay big, and we're like, he'll do. And we purchased him and brought him out with us. Uh, We wanted to have steaks that night for dinner. So we just found like the biggest, cheapest piece of meat we possibly could and bought that. Uh, We got some firewood. Uh, We thought it'd be cool to have like breakfast sausage and pancakes over an open fire in the morning. So we bought pancake batter and all that stuff. And we loaded up all of our supplies. We threw them in the back of my pickup truck and we took off to the Oklahoma wilderness uh, at the largest mountain that Oklahoma has, which is uh, the uh, wildlife refuge in Lawton. Um, yeah, some of y'all have been there, you know, it's not that big. But it worked, right? We were, we were satisfied with it. And so we get to our campsite. Sure enough, it was starting to get dark. And so we're like, ah, okay, well, we can't fish, unfortunately. But we've got our fish, right? We've got Nemo. We'll just take him and throw him in the fish cooker and just throw him over the fire. So we did that. And as we're just kind of watching Nemo cook, uh, we're like, this is great. Let's get the steaks out. And so we were preparing all that stuff. Uh, the fish was done. But we quickly realized uh, how unprepared we were for that weekend. Because little by little, uh, just small stuff started not going the way that we envisioned it in our minds. 
And so we pull this fish off of the rack uh, that we had had, and we kind of open it up, right? It was one of those closing ones. It was like sandwich fish cook racks. So we open it up, and he's there, dead, right? And we're like, now what? Right? Or we're like, do we like, like, peel off the scales? Or do we, so we had no idea what to do. We just pulled out a knife and just kind of started like carving at the fish and trying to pull pieces of meat off of it. Uh, which didn't work out very well. Um, and so sitting there with this like half, like this cooked, half carved up fish that didn't really seem to like give us any nutritional value because there's bones everywhere. We're like, you know what? For some reason, maybe I just watched too many cartoons, but I just kind of figured the skeleton all just came off in one piece, right? It's not the case. It doesn't work that way. And so we're like, well, this was kind of a loss, whatever. We kind of threw that fish aside. Like, but at least we've got steak, Right? So we go into the cooler and we grab this piece of meat out, which was not steak. It was actually roast, which we did not know there was a difference at the time, right? We just found the biggest piece of meat we could. We're like, that looks manly. We'll grab that and uh, put it over the fire. And in about two minutes, we realized that we did not bring enough firewood. And we're like, okay, well, what's the next best thing? we have uh, lighter fluid, right? So we had plenty of lighter fluid, and we just start, like, Matt would hold the lighter fluid, and I would hold the steak, and every time the flames would go down, he would just like, right, just like spray the fire, like cook it up until the meat looked cooked to us. And so we're like, I guess that works. And so we started cutting this piece of meat up and eating it, only to realize that if you cook meat with lighter fluid, it tastes like lighter fluid which was absolutely horrible, right? And so uh, we threw that aside. We pulled out some corn on the cob, which was the one wise thing we brought with us, right? Because you can't mess up corn on the cob, right? It's just, it's easy. So we ate some corn and we went to bed. And we thought to ourselves, at least we've got breakfast sausage and pancakes in the morning, right? And so we wake up in the morning only to realize that some raccoons apparently found our breakfast sausage and just ripped it all apart. And we're like, darn it, um, we didn't secure the cooler, right? Because we didn't know that was the thing. Um, at least we have pancakes, though. And so as we get the pancake batter out, Matt looks at me, he's like, dude, did you bring pots or pans? I was like, no, we need those. And he's like, well, I don't know how we're going to cook this. It's like, maybe we can, like, cut up the bean can, right? And, like, spread it out over the fire and, like, pour our batter in there. And he's like, dude, I don't know about this, man. I don't think it's going to work. I was like, well, at least we have some corn left over, right? And so, like, we ate some corn and drank some Gatorade and then just jumped in the truck and gunned it for two and a half hours back to our house where we just, like, burst through the front door on hand and knee, just crawling towards the kitchen to get a bowl of cereal, right? Now, this is why I tell you guys this story. If you were building a team of survival experts, you would probably not have Matt and I on your team. All right? We did multiple things that would not aid in the survival of people out in the wilderness. Now, this morning, we're not talking about how to build a survival team. Uh, but what we are talking about is how do you build a church? How do you build a church? How did Jesus build his church? Because when you look at the text, you look at Matthew, you look at the way in which Jesus built his church, it, there's very, very specific principles you see applied in his strategy. 
And so what I want to talk about this morning is how did Jesus build his church? And then from that, hopefully glean principles that we can learn ourselves as we seek to build our church here in Plano, God's church here in Plano, LifePoint. And so if we're going to understand this, the first thing we have to understand is where Jesus built his church. Where Jesus built his church. And if you're taking notes, the first thing I want you all to write down is that Jesus built in brokenness. Jesus built in brokenness. So when you look at chapter 18 of Matthew, uh, you see three examples of individuals that Jesus came across immediately following the Sermon on the Mount. Which is really significant because these disciples just read Five through seven, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, thinking like this is the message of the kingdom. But, but what does that look like? How does that play itself out? And that's why you see these three illustrations immediately following verses or chapters five through seven. And so when you see these three people in Matthew 8, you see uh, the first one is that Jesus was confronted by this man with leprosy, right? Verses one through two, it says, large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly, a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, what's significant about this individual right here is that we all know like leprosy is a bad disease, right? It's not fun. It's uh, ultimately just a very uncomfortable thing for this guy to go through, right? But when you look at the Levitical law back in the Old Testament, What you see is so much more than just being bothered by this disease was that this man was a social outcast because of the disease that he had. So because of this disease he had, it caused him to be ostracized from the rest of society. When you look at Leviticus chapter 13, 45, and 46... You see this. And just imagine like, what, what, light, what your life would be like if this is what you had to do. It says those who suffer from a serious skin disease must tear their clothing, leave their hair uncombed. They must cover their mouth and call out, unclean, unclean. As long as the serious disease lasts, they will be ceremonially unclean. They must live in isolation in their place outside the camp. Just having to tear your clothes, leave your hair unkept, scream out all the time like, unclean, unclean, don't come near me, I'm not worthy to be near you, stay away from me, and then just living by yourself in that state. This man was a social outcast from the rest of society in Israel. And I would argue that we have outsiders in our community as well. Right? It's not a, that's not a big leap to make. Right? Josie and I uh, live in an apartment complex that's incredibly quiet and well-kept. There's very little any kind of crime, any at all. Uh, but one of the reasons for that is because a majority of the people in our apartment complex are all individuals uh, that have come here from India to work in major corporations in Plano and Frisco. It's a very quiet area. But consequently, we've tried to like, engage with people out there, but like, everybody is just so kept to themselves and doesn't really interact with anybody else that it's like you have two different distinct groups here. It's almost like you've got your typical Plano, Frisco people right, that we meet out there, but then you've got this whole sect of people that are just kind of outsiders, they're just kind of outsiders. And this is the first type of person that Jesus was confronted with in Matthew chapter 8. And see, secondly, Jesus was confronted by a Roman officer. 
So Matthew 8, verse 5, it says, When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him. And many of you guys probably know this, but because Israel was under the control of Rome, Rome was basically, this Roman officer would have basically been seen as, as the political enemy of the day. Like the political enemy of the day, right? We had, uh, you, oh, everybody knows the story of Matthew, who's a tax collector, right? Nobody liked him because he aligned himself with the Roman government so that he could make money and he extorted his fellow Israelites because of that. And so nobody liked this kind of person. He was a political enemy of the day. And we have political enemies as well. We, we tend to have political enemies as well. When I was watching, uh, we were going to summer camp with the kids, and one of the movies we were watching on the bus was Blindside uh, with Sandra Bullock, which is an awesome movie. But there's a, there's a scene in the movie that's really funny because they're in uh, Tennessee, and uh, there's a scene where they're hiring this lady to be a tutor uh, for their adopted son. Her, name's is, her name is uh, Miss Sue, and as Sandra Bullock is interviewing her, uh, she says this. She says to Sandra Bullock, she's like, you know, there's something I feel that you should know about me before you hire me for this job. And uh, uh, Bullock just kind of like, she's kind of confused. She's like, okay, like, like what is it? She looks at her, she's like, I'm a Democrat. And uh, she's like... Okay, you know, kind of like put off a little bit there. But, but the reason like we laugh at it, the reason it's, it's funny is because like it's the South, right? It's like stereotypical more right and conservative and Republican, right? And so there's just kind of this natural just sort of divide right there. And we probably wouldn't go so far as to say like we have political enemies of the day, right? But we have people that vary drastically from where we are politically, and consequently, we can allow that to become a, divide, a, a divisive factor in building relationships with other people. Right, there's probably people uh, in Plano or in Frisco or just in Texas, obviously, who are probably not there. Their Friday night ideal plan is probably not to like, go out and try to find like, an AOC or a Bernie Sanders supporter and just like, I want to be your friend, right? Like, there's probably people here in the Midwest that are like that. Like, that is not what I want to do. I don't want to go find those people to befriend them. Like, I want to stay away from those people because they're just haters. They don't understand. They're going to ruin our country, right? Like, we have all of these political beliefs and agendas, and at times, we can cause those beliefs, and it's fine to have different beliefs. It's okay. There's no problem with that. But when you cause those beliefs to become divisive factors in you building relationships with other people, it's like going back to the Jews and the Romans. Right, they're, they're political enemies. Third group Jesus came across is Jesus was led to a sick woman, Matthew 8, 14. When Jesus arrived at Peter's house, Peter's mother-in-law was, in, was sick in bed with a high fever. And women here were seen, the readers here would have seen this as Jesus interacting with a second-class citizen. Like he, he would have seen it that way. Right? The rights of women and the rights of men were very, very, very different. At that point. And just interacting with a second class citizen. Now, um, I would argue that we have, quote unquote, and again, we would probably never say this because it would sound super mean, but like I would argue that if we're honest, we have people that are treated like second class citizens here. All right? And if you don't believe me, like just think about this idea of like there is such a thing in this country as a lower, a middle, and an upper class. Like, there is. Like, it's not as prevalent maybe in other countries and other cultures, but it's here. And this isn't like a, like, Dane preaching against capitalism. Right? I'm not doing that, okay? Um, so don't take it that way. 
But my point is this. If I were to tell you in one minute, Mark Cuban is going to come walking through that door right here, and he's going to sit down next to one of you guys, and you don't know who it is, but he's going to sit down next to one of you guys, like the natural default would probably be like, I'm going to check my clothes, like I'm going to make sure I'm, like, I'm, I'm smell okay, like did I shower, like is there deodorant on right now, like am I okay, I want to make a good impression. Like that's going to be our natural disposition. Whereas if I told you, hey, in uh, a minute there's going to be a, a homeless guy that I met this morning uh, coming in, he's going to sit down next to one of you guys. The natural disposition is probably like, oh man, I hope it's not me. Right? Why? Because there are such things as that second-class citizen in this country. It exists. And Jesus engages with that person. Now, I'm not trying to cast shame on any of us. I'm not trying to do that. But what I do want to make a point here is that Jesus built his church in a world of brokenness that Jesus built his church in a world of brokenness, and it's the same world that we live in today. It's the same world we live in today. Now, how did Jesus build his church in the world of brokenness that he came to? And I would say it's the same way that he does it today. Jesus builds with brokenness. Jesus builds with brokenness. And so again, looking back at these three individuals that Jesus interacts with, the leper in Matthew 8, 3 through 4, it says, Jesus reached out and touched him, saying, I am willing, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. And then Jesus said to him, don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. Jesus takes this individual, heals him, and then uses his testimony as a public declaration of this kingdom that has come. He builds with brokenness. He does the exact same thing with the Roman officer, Matthew 8, 10 through 12. Like, right, the Roman officer comes to him, he says, uh, I've got a servant who's sick and in pain. Jesus is like, hey, I'll come. And the Roman officer says, nope, don't worry about it. You don't need to do that. Just say the word and it'll happen. I believe it. And then in verses 10 through 12, Jesus responds by saying this. He says, turning to those who are following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. Right? And Matthew is writing this to a Jewish audience. Right? And Jesus is saying, hey, I know Gentiles, outsiders, people y'all don't like, who are going to come and sit down with your forefathers. And then to take it one step further, in verse 12, he says, but many Israelites, some of y'all who consider yourselves to be like the in crowd, the people who belong here, those for whom the kingdom was prepared will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus builds with brokenness. And then lastly, Peter's mother-in-law, Matthew 8, chapter, or verse 15 But when Jesus touched her, this is really interesting, when Jesus touched her hand, the fever left her, then she got up and prepared a meal for him. As soon as Jesus heals this woman, her natural response is to get up and serve him. Why? Because Jesus builds with brokenness. 
Jesus built his church with the diseased, the enemy, and the outcast. The diseased, the enemy, and the outcast. That's how he built his church. We, um, uh, I saw a movie a little while back called Fighting With My Family. It's actually, it's, it's pretty funny. It's entertaining if you guys have seen it. It's a wrestling movie. Uh, based off of a true story, actually, I didn't know that. Um, but one of the scenes in this, there's a, the, one of the brothers' names is Zach. And Zach kind of helps to run his family's uh, wrestling um, business or whatever. And think like WWE, like not, not, uh, like not competitive wrestling, but like WWE or WWF when I grew up is what it was called. Um, and so he trains people to become wrestlers that could eventually try to go out and work for WWE. But what's so interesting is that as Zach is kind of building their wrestling team, he builds it with the least likely people. He builds it with kids who are drug dealers and misfits. He even builds it with a blind kid. There's a blind kid in the movie who he's teaching to wrestle. Like, how bizarre is that? Like, that's the worst team strategy ever. Like, if you want to have a successful wrestling company, like, I know, let's get this blind friend of mine who can't even see, but we'll teach him to wrestle and we'll be awesome because of it, right? Terrible strategy. You would never do that. But that's the reason that I've titled this sermon, How Not to Build a Team, because typically Jesus' strategy for how he builds the church is the exact opposite of how we would build it. It's the exact opposite of how we would build it. Jesus builds with the diseased, the enemy, and the outcast. Now, quick side note, this does not mean that you have to be one of those three people to get into the kingdom, right? Because that's not the unifying factor of all three of these people. The unifying factor of all three of these people is that they had trust in Jesus. That's Matthew's point here. He highlights the faith that all three of these people had in Matthew 8, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, turning to those who were following him. He said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. It was faith that set these people apart. It was, it was this mindset, this disposition that I believe that whatever my issue is, whatever my problem is, Jesus is the answer. I believe he can do it, and the best way for me to live my life is to align my life with his. That's what it means to have faith. But catch this, what I'm saying here this morning, is that it is almost always pain that pushes us to the path of faith. It is almost always pain that pushes us to the path of faith. It's no accident that you see somebody with leprosy. It's no accident that the Roman centurion came to Jesus because his servant was sick and in pain. It's no accident that you have Peter's mother-in-law sick and ill in bed. It's almost always pain that pushes us to the path of faith. And it's no coincidence that verse 17 says, This fulfilled the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah who said he took our sicknesses and removed our diseases. And just think about your own life for a second. When you first came to faith in Christ, my bet is that most of y'all had something going wrong in your life at that time. There was something that softened your heart to the message of the gospel, that God in his sovereignty allowed or brought into your life to lead you to him, to show you that you can't do this life by yourself. It is almost always pain that pushes us to the path of faith. 
this last week, um, I uh, spent uh, five, six days down at Fort Hood. Um, the unit I was with uh, was a different unit that I'm assigned to, but uh, my supervisory chaplain uh, for the Army um, asked me if I would go down to Fort Hood for five, six days and help out this other unit that had its own chaplain, but she hadn't quite been, um, hadn't gone through the Army's training for chaplaincy yet, so he asked me, hey, could you come down, just kind of shadow her, kind of be along with her, and just kind of help her get going. I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. So I went down there for five days. I thought we were going to be in barracks, right, bunk beds and whatnot, um, only to realize that we were actually out in the field, uh, which is fine, I've been out in the field before, but in 95 degree heat and humidity, uh, sleeping on the ground with just no change of clothes at all, right? Uh, no showers, right? So I went like five, six days without a shower, wearing the same uniform over and over and over again, um, sleeping outside with the bugs and the mosquitoes and sweating until I got tired enough to fall asleep. I woke up. There was always this time I'd wake up at like 4.30 and everything would be perfect, right? Because it was cool enough. Like, oh, this is nice. I'd fall asleep. An hour later, my alarm would go off for me to get up. Great. That figures. Anyway, there was a lot of suffering, obviously, that went on with all of our soldiers during that time. But what was interesting was that one of the soldiers who was attached with our, we call UMT, a unit ministry team. It's basically the chaplain and the chaplain assistant stay together. They're called the UMT, unit ministry team. Anyway, uh, you do have to be someone of faith to be a chaplain. You don't have to be someone of faith to be a chaplain assistant. And this particular soldier, uh, who was her chaplain assistant, was actually a Wiccan soldier. Um, yeah, which some of you are like, wow. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, a, it's a real thing. Um, and uh, over about three, like day three, day four, I can't remember what the thing is, day four, um, this soldier, because he had been a prior heat casualty, uh, meaning he had you know, fainted because of the heat, um, had been having a lot of difficulty doing his job there and had consequently kind of gotten a lot of slack from other soldiers um, complaining to him, like, I mean, like, you're not pulling your weight, you're not working hard enough, you're not doing your job, yada, yada, yada. And, uh, and so he kind of came to, to me and this, this other chaplain, he was kind of talking about this, and, and I just thought, I told him, I was like, listen, man, like, if you want to be good at this profession, you've got to have a thick skin. Like, you have to. You can't be in this job and not have a thick skin. And, uh, and that was a little crushing for him because he, he didn't really have a thick skin. And he said to me, super innocent, like really honestly, honestly asked me, he's like, how do, you, how do you get that though? And I told him, I was like, man, to be, to be totally honest, it's like it, it comes down to what do you value more than anything else? Right? Your values will dictate how, how thick your skin is in different situations. And he's like, well, what do you mean by that? And I told him, I was like, well, man, here, so here's the thing. Like, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. Um... So ultimately, more than anything else, what I care about is I care about what God thinks about the ministry that I do and the work that I do and how I carry myself. That's more important to me than anything else. That's my number one core value. And so therefore, everything that I hear, everything that other people say to me, I am able to filter through that core value. And we talked for longer than that, but what I'm saying here, what my point is here in this, is that in that moment, in that, that time at night, like I got to flush that out some more and talk to him about that and got to share the gospel with a Wiccan soldier because he was at a point of pain and discouragement and suffering. And God often uses pain to point us to the path of faith. It was the same in my life. It was probably the same in y'all's life. God will bring storms to soften that hard soil, right? And so if that's 
us as followers of Jesus wanting to think, how do we, how do we build God's church? Because right? he called us to, he said, hey, seek the kingdom of everything else. Like build the church, which you're called to do. If that's the case, what does this mean for us? And it means simply this, point number three. It means you bring the broken. It means you bring the broken. When Jesus sends out the 12 disciples in Matthew 10, a couple chapters down, verses 7 and 8, He says, go announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. Give as freely as you have received. If you're a follower of Jesus, he calls you to go out and do the exact same thing that he does. To bring the broken. Now quick aside here, this summer... Before uh, Pastor George uh, uh, took his sabbatical this month, he uh, uh, talked with myself and Marty uh, and Rob, some of the the pastors who are preaching this month, and told us uh, kind of about what he wanted preached this month and this idea of building your team, right? And so two weeks ago, Marty was talking about this idea of, of knowing where people are at spiritually, Understanding where they're at spiritually. Last week, Rob talks on this idea of praying over people and asking God what what your next step is in their life. And this week, I'm talking about this idea of discerning who you need to invite to church. Who you need to turn your eyes to. And as I was thinking through that and how to best communicate that, I just decided the best thing to do was to just look at the way that Jesus did it. Look at what Jesus did. Who did it seem he turns his eyes to? Who does it seem like he gives a lot of attention to? What was his strategy for building his church? And Jesus went to the hurting and the oppressed. He went to the enemy and the ostracized. He built his church with the broken. And so this morning, ask yourselves, in your place of work, wherever you do your hobbies, at the gym, maybe if you go there. Like, who do you know who's experiencing pain in their life right now? Whether it's marital pain or financial pain or physical pain. Who do you know right now who is in a place of pain and difficulty and discouragement? Who do you know that may feel like an outsider right now? Maybe someone who's just moved into your neighborhood. Maybe somebody who's just started working at your place of business. Whenever you make a transition, you go somewhere new, you're automatically an outsider. Just because you don't know anybody. You're automatically an outsider. Are there people in your neighborhood, other people at your work who are new, that just came there, just started working there? What can you do to reach out to them and to build a friendship with them? Because I can guarantee you guys, that's a lonely place to be when you are in a room with a whole bunch of people that know everybody and you don't know anybody. That's a lonely place to be. Those are your outsiders. Why not reach out to that person? Why not invite that person to church and grab lunch with them afterwards? Why not go watch a sports game with them? Why not spend time and prioritize time with that person? Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus will use those storms, those periods of transition in people's lives, that pain and that suffering. He will use those storms to lead people to the Savior. And so this morning, I want to encourage you guys to invite the broken. Invite the broken. Who are those who are hurting? Who are those who are on the outside? Because when we do this, when we do this, we fit with God's film. 
We fit with God's film. That's the fourth point if you're taking notes. We fit with God's film. This is what I mean by that. I'm going to explain that a little bit. So I heard this, uh, I heard a pastor give this illustration when I was in college, and it just really, really just kind of messed with me a little bit. He was talking about how, uh, you know, one night his wife and him were watching a movie, and they just kind of decided, like, it'd be fun to kind of check out what deleted scenes there were in that movie and kind of hear the director's commentary at the same time uh, about each of these deleted scenes and, like, why was this scene deleted and not included and, 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 and whatnot. Kind of geeky, but, you know, kind of interesting. So... He's watching these scenes, like scene after scene after scene after scene, and he noticed a, a trend with what the director was saying about each scene. And basically it went like this. He said, basically every single scene that was deleted and left out of the movie wasn't left out of the movie because of bad acting. It wasn't left out of the movie because it lacked uh, excitement. Uh, it wasn't left out of the movie because it was a bad shot. Like, in fact, the director kept saying the same thing. He's like, hey, this is great acting right here. They did an awesome job. This is an outstanding shot. Like, the cinematography here was just on point. What the director kept saying, though, he's like, yeah, I just, the scene just didn't fit with the rest of the movie. It, it just didn't fit. And his pastor was talking about that and, 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 and saying to his, his congregation, he's like, you know, I don't know if this is the case or not. He's like, but I can just kind of imagine that whenever we stand before Christ and all of us gather for the feast of the Lamb, he's like, I just think it would be a blast. He's like, if all of us just got to just see the story from just the beginning to the end and all the ways in which the Holy Spirit was moving and God was acting throughout history and drawing people himself and all just the awesome stuff that you got to, you just didn't get to be a part of because you had your own little part that you were part of that God was using you for. He's like, and what I don't want to have happen in my life is that as we get to my life, for, for the attitude and the response to be like, man, like, yeah, like, he, like he, he got an awesome lake house. Like, he got the boat. Like, that's cool. Like, they went to vacation in Europe. Like, man, like, he got this awesome car right here. And that's, that's great. He's like, but it, didn't, it just doesn't really fit. It doesn't really fit. Because the whole movie, the whole story of history is how God is bringing the oppressed, the broken, the enemy, and the outcast. And he's using them to build this kingdom of misfits that will change the world by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting in the name of Jesus Christ as the living, dying, and resurrecting Savior of the world. And in that scope, buying a boat just doesn't really fit. I'm not against buying boats, but I don't want my life to end up becoming just a deleted movie scene in God's story. And I don't think that's what y'all want either. This isn't a salvation issue, right? We know you're saved by grace, through faith, the second that, you're, uh, that you place your faith in Christ. But what you do with your life after that makes a profound impact on eternity. And I don't want my life to become a deleted movie scene. We see what God is doing in the Gospel of Matthew here. He's building this kind of worst team building strategy ever. But that's what's so amazing about it that God would take people like you and me and people the world doesn't see as worth anything and change the world with them. 
I used to watch uh, the show Duck Dynasty when I was uh, in uh, grad school, which I love. It's super entertaining. But like, it just always like marveled me. I was like, that, like that's so God's agenda, right? Like, I'm just going to take a bunch of people to live out in the woods and hunt their own food and talk weird and dress funny, and I'm just, you know, just going to use them to kind of change a lot of people's lives. And I watched this, and I'm like, that's totally something God would do, which is awesome, right? It's super cool. And that's what I want to be a part of. I don't want to sit in a pew. I'm tired of sitting in pews and just hearing other people's stories of how God did this amazing thing or that amazing thing and God showed up in this miraculous way. I'm tired of sitting in pews and just hearing those stories and then not having any of my own. I don't want to sit back and just be a spectator. Like, I want to be in the movie. I want to be on the field. I want to be doing stuff. I want to be a part of what God is doing in this world because everything else just seems useless. And that's what I think y'all want too. It's great to hear stories. It's awesome to have them. Because you look back and you're just like, I can't even believe what God did. And so as we are sitting here this morning, think to yourself, who are those people in my life? Who's hurting right now? Who are the outsiders right now? Who's going through transition? Who's new at my place of business? And ask God, God, will you give me favor to befriend them, to have a relationship with them, that they would see me as somebody they want to hang out with, they want to talk to. God, give me the courage and the boldness to just go talk to them and just say, hey, let's have lunch tomorrow together. I, just, I would love to get to know you. You seem like you're new. I'd love to kind of just hear your story and, and, and hang out for a bit and find out what hobbies we might share together, maybe go off and do that stuff together and build that relationship with one another because God is building his kingdom and he's doing it with broken, messed up people And that's what's so amazing. And I want to be part of that story. I want to dive into that pool. I want to be a part of that movie. And I think you all do too. And so I want us to pray for that right here. And then we will continue in worship uh, with our tithes and our offerings. Please uh, pray with me. Father, I, I want that when I see uh, your story and what you're doing in Scripture, Father, and and how you are uh, changing people's lives, people who the rest of society would push away, would not see as important or significant at all, you move in their lives and you use messed up people to change messed up people. You know, as it's been said, like we're all a bunch of nobodies trying to tell everybody about somebody who will save anybody. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see the broken people in our lives. You would give us eyes to see the ostracized, eyes to see the outsider. God, that you would bother that inside of us, that we would see that and, like, not be able to stand still. And you would give us words to speak, that you would give us boldness to step forward. And, God, by your power that you would change lives and reap all the glory for it. Because at the end of the day, it's all about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about you and what you are doing in this world to build your church. And I pray, Father, that we would be a part of that for your glory and the good of your church. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.